Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. Our solar system is a pretty dynamic and incredible place, from asteroids to the formation of planets. Now you think about the solar system as some kind of static, always there, omnipresent system, but it's evolved and changed, gone through massive collisions, left behind remnants like asteroids and meteorites. And the only way we can study that is to go and visit these things, and that's exactly what we're going to be talking about this week. Ways we can piece together the ideas about the formation of our own solar system. We've talked about the remarkable Japanese space agency, JAXA's, space probe mission to the asteroid Ryugu before. This mission, Hayabusa 2, has already deployed two landers that hop around the surface of the asteroid, as well as another stationary probe, and has actually now touched down onto the surface of the planet. A little bit later than originally forecast in October last year, but the Japanese team did manage to actually touch down on the surface, shoot a bullet at the surface of the asteroid to dig into the surface and kick up debris to be captured by its sampling horn. Now this is a pretty impressive mission to fly all the way to an asteroid, drop a number of space probes onto it, then shoot it, capture samples, and we'll all complete in a miraculous return back to Earth scheduled for 2020. Now this has been a pretty impressive mission to follow that we've captured and talked about several times before. It's a really complicated and intricate mission put together by JAXA that together with the Rosetta mission have really changed our understanding of how asteroids work. They've helped us understand that carbon-rich asteroids, where they've come from, what they're made up of, the presence of water in these rocks, and what even the surface is like. For example, pretty rocky and full of gravel and dust, which hopefully has been collected as samples and can be taken back to Earth. Now, this is some pretty amazing and cutting-edge science that the team had to do. The, t- the surface of the asteroid was even rockier than they even originally planned. So that's why there was a delay in actually finding out where to land and touch down. And even after they'd done that, they weren't sure that their bullet that they were going to shoot at it was going to be able to penetrate the surface. So they had to conduct last minute tests once they'd found a site to try and even see if their sampling method would work. Fortunately, it does appear to have kicked up enough debris for them to be able to sample and bring back to Earth. But we won't really know until 2020 when the sample itself returns to Earth and we can crack it open and find out what's inside. But nevertheless, this is a great achievement for the Japanese Space Agency, really changing our understanding of asteroids in general, an integral part of our solar system but also, potentially, what are the sources of life on our planet? So one of the amazing things that the Hayabusa mission, together with the Cyrus-Rex and Rosetta, have shown us is they've really changed our understanding of how asteroids could have potentially formed, what they're made up of, and what they might carry. For example, water. And if you think about early Earth, when our planet was formed 4.5 billion years ago from a protoplanetary accretion disk, we weren't the only thing hanging around. There was a lot of just junk accreting, forming layers, smalling, clumping together. That's what gave us our planets in the inner core. And the stuff that was left over was sort of herded into tightly formed asteroid groups or rings. The asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter is one such example of that. Jupiter and the other outer planets herded all these asteroids into sort of areas, so to speak, where they clumped up. But 
the ones that didn't form nice stable groupings around our planet were thrown towards Earth and the other planets, bombarding them. And a recent study from the Spanish National Research Council, Institute of Space Sciences, published in the journal Space Science Reviews, has looked at the very important role that such a bombardment by asteroids flung at us from Jupiter in the very early stages of our planet's life may have helped introduce water to the Earth at such a critical young stage. It would have facilitated the transportation of other volatile elements as well as organic material and water as they rain down on Earth in the very period of Earth's formation. Now, in order to study this, scientists actually can't just ask an asteroid because, well, there's not many around. And we are trying to do just that by sampling and returning back to Earth with missions like JAXA's Hayabusa 2 and Osiris-Rex. The only other way you can really study it is by trying to analyse meteorites. These are fragments from asteroidal bolids that fall to Earth. And they've been studying a particular subset of those, carbonaceous condites from asteroid bodies that, due to their size, are pretty small, generally less than 100 100 kilometres. They don't really melt, and that means they don't go through the kind of internal chemical change, which if you compare it to a comet, which does, or a planet, which definitely does, these bodies indicate sort of history of our solar system, act like a fossil legacy from the creation of what scientists call planetesimals, the building blocks that make up a planet. These meteorites, either from NASA's Antarctic collection, or maybe a collection of meteorites from Europe from the 1960s and 1820s. Uh, give us some sample point that these Spanish scientists have been using, but it's not really a lot to go by. But by studying these fossils, these legacies of these early asteroids from the early ages of the formation of our entire solar system, not just the planet Earth, we actually get a pretty interesting insight into what was raining down on the young Earth. Now, if you think about what could have led to Earth getting water. Given that Earth formed so close to the Sun, there are plenty of things carrying water around in our solar system, like comets, which are all the way out as big chunks of ice out of the Kupia belt, or hydrated or carbonaceous asteroids. Those also were in sort of that middling region. Now, a lot of them were hurled towards around 4 billion years ago, when Jupiter and Saturn moved to their final location. This migration in the early formations of our solar system spun off a lot of other asteroids and flew them down to Earth, which means that around 3.8 billion years ago, they started landing on Earth. And we get to see, see this in the actual record. And they were carrying inside them, nestled and protected inside these meteorites and asteroids that rained down on our planet really intricate matrices containing water and other volatile forms of different type of minerals, perhaps even organic matter. Now, these all rained down on Earth in what scientists classify as the heavy bombardment period, about 3.8 billion years ago, as the orbit sort of stabilised of all the planets. And it yields an interesting question. What could have been the source of life on Earth as one form? Abiogenesis is a touted theory which states that life came from somewhere else. And we're not really going to get into that with the results that we've got here. But we can answer the question about where some, maybe not all, of the water on Earth came from. And they could have been transported inside these asteroids and comet bodies that were destabilized and thrown at Earth. But to really get a better idea about the these early forms and building blocks of planets, these leftovers bits, the leftover Lego pieces or odd bits of IKEA assembly that you might have lying around in the formation of the solar system, actually could have been then flung down towards Earth 
and given us an extra boost of water and other complex chemicals that we may not have had. There's some great research published in the journal Space Science Reviews out of the Spanish Natural Research. Now, the early solar system was incredibly dynamic and volatile. You think about the orbits of the planets, and aside from perhaps a planet getting reclassified from a planet to a dwarf planet, we view the rest of the solar system as something static, something that's always been there and will always be like that. And look, in the four billion years, it's reasonably a good approximation of the history of our solar system. But it's not really the true story, because our solar system is constantly changing and evolving. We have, for example, lost a moon around Jupiter. We just don't know where it went. We can't find it anymore. Perhaps it was destroyed. We also can see in the remains and the makeup of our solar system giant accidents that would have happened. Of course, there are theories that the reason why Earth ended up with such a large moon, and only one of them, is a result of a very large collision with a Mars-sized planet, the ending result giving us our moon. But we don't really have enough evidence to support that hypothesis at this stage, though it's sort of a mixed bag on whether that could be the origin story for the moon. But if you cast your mind out to many more billion years ago, and consider Neptune right at the boundary of our solar system, You'd think that Neptune would act almost like a gatekeeper to the Cupia Belt objects beyond, and that it certainly does. You think about the Cupia Belt and the objects that lie within it. Asteroids, dwarf planets, small planets, you name it. Comets, that all of these things are sort of travelling around in a big belt. And the large gas giants like Saturn and Jupiter and Uranus certainly do keep those objects in check. But because of Neptune's stranger orbit, it does result in some uh, pretty unusual things taking place. Take, for example, the Neptune moon Triton. Now, Triton, if you can consider it, wouldn't make much sense for it to originally have formed around Neptune. And the reason is, if you look at the size of Triton compared to the rest of the objects around it, something seems out of balance. And Triton itself has a pretty odd orbit. And that is because, well, Neptune didn't originally start out with Triton at all. It had its own little moons, small in size, sort of made up of the leftovers of the formation of the planet Neptune. And it captured those and herded them around. But then it saw, out in the Cupia belt, probably around 3 to 4 billion years ago, something pretty big, something pretty exciting, and that was Triton. And so Neptune actually plucked Triton out of the Cupia belt, this region full of icy and rocky objects, far out of the edge of our solar system, and it trapped Triton in its gravity well. Pretty good for Neptune. Ended up with a large moon. Or so you'd think. Because Triton is so large that it actually would have torn up all of the other little satellites and moons around Neptune, fracturing them and shattering them into lots of pieces, which would then would have had to reform and recoalesce down into a second generation of smaller natural satellites. But the problem is, just like Neptune captured Triton, it's also capturing a whole bunch of other things. And much like early Earth was bombarded by comets and asteroids from Jupiter and Saturn clearing out our early solar system, the same thing was happening with Neptune. Not only did it have things getting flung away from Jupiter and Saturn, it also was itself collecting objects from the Cupia belt, much in the same way as it collected Triton. 
And so that leads us to the curious case of an object discovered by Hubble, the Space Telescope, all the way back in 2013. Now, researchers from NASA's Goddard Space Center and the SETI Institute in Mount View, California, have been digging through the data from Hubble. And when they did, they found a really nice picture of a tiny, tiny moon named Hippocamp orbiting very close to an existing very large or larger Neptunian moon called Proteus. Now, why does it matter? Well, Hippocamp, aside from being named after the half-horse, half-fish creature from Greek mythology, by the way, the same root of the name for the hippocampus, the important part of the human brain. Um, as you know, Neptune being the Roman god of the sea, there's a lot of sea-themed names around it. But more importantly, Hippocamp is incredibly small. It's only about 34 kilometers across. And if you compare it to Proteus, the moon next to it, which is around 418 kilometers across, there's a huge disparity in size. About Proteus is 1,000 times bigger than this little tiny chip, Hippocamp. So why is Hippocamp still existing? How did it get there? Why hasn't it been swallowed up by the much larger moon Proteus or anything else in the Neptunian orbit? Well, the way we solved this mystery, scientists from the NASA Goddard Space Center have been poring over images all the way back from 1989, from Voyager 2. Yes, this fabulous and very famous space probe managed to take some pretty exciting pictures of the moons of Neptune as it flew past all the way back in the late 1980s. It took a really nice snapshot of Proteus, and when they looked at that, they could see a really big impact crater. Now, all the way back in 1989, they saw that impact crater and said, oh, that's cool, nice big crater. But now with Hubble, you can actually peer at not only Proteus and Hippocamp. You can see that these two objects are very close. They're only about 12,000 kilometers apart, which is, in planetary sense, actually very close indeed. And if you look at the impact crater, it does support, both based on modeling and actual physical evidence looking at the impact crater and the interactions, is that it's most likely that this tiny little chip of a moon, Hippocamp, was actually the result of Proteus being smashed by some large object, comet, asteroid, you name it, being flung in from the Cupia belt, causing a huge impact and cracking off a piece of the planet, or the moon. And that being left behind is what Hippocamp is. And it's slowly become migrating further and further away as a result of the collision, but it also is also building up out of the remains and other objects around it, more and more material. So Hippocamp is growing in size, but it actually started off as a part of Proteus. So just like Triton cleared out, crushed and reformed all the moons around Neptune, even the smaller moons that have been crushed and reformed are also constantly evolving and changing, leading to the birth of a small moon like Hippocamp, which you might consider, as the scientists do, a third generation satellite, a third generation of moons around Neptune. And that is pretty amazing to think about. It shows, as researcher Jack Lissor from NASA's Ames Research Center in California, who is a key co-author in this study, says, this pair of satellites provides a dramatic illustration that moons are sometimes broken apart by comets. And even more dramatically, it goes to show that our understanding of the solar system 
shouldn't be viewed as some kind of fixed object. It's constantly evolving and changing as objects collide, reform, coalesce, spread apart, and undertake dramatic, sometimes, changes in size and shape. So our universe is constantly changing, and our solar system is constantly changing. Some pretty great research published in the Goddard Space Flight Center. It will appear in the February 21 issue of the journal Nature. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, Lagrange Point. From visiting asteroids to studying meteorites and examining the fossil record of the formation of our own planet, we've also found out more about how other planets form their own moons and our solar system changes. Our ending theme was composed by Audio Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.